Welcome to the Surveyor Hub podcast, brought to you by Blue Box Partners, the only show dedicated to small business residential surveyors and valuers, created by surveyors for surveyors. In every episode, you'll learn something new about the vibrant and thriving industry of residential surveying. We don't mind what flavor of surveyor you are or what level of experience you might have. If you're in the business of helping people with their homes, this is the community for you. I'm Marion Ellis, and today I'm talking to Claire Elaine Arthurs, a solicitor and CEDA accredited mediator. She specializes in property dispute resolution and risk management. So let's kick this off then. I'm delighted to have you on this podcast, Claire. Uh, we, we were just saying, I can't remember how I actually met you or got to know you. And I thought I hadn't met you, but then you pointed out that I probably have met you. And now I feel really embarrassed. <laughs> no, I think it was one of those things. When you first set up the Surveyors Hub, you put out a call, obviously, for anybody that could help or was interested in supporting surveyors. Because I was already doing that kind of work, but coming from a, a sort of legal background uh, with some business coaching in there, obviously a lot different to what you're doing, but very much looking to try and support surveyors as well. So I, I reached out and I've been hovering around the sides of the community since it started now. <laughs> Do you know what? I think there's a few people that hover around, mm. but there's so much activity that goes on in there. I, I can't believe how how well it's taken off, but importantly, how supportive people are of each other. I think that's the thing. I think we do underestimate how much people do genuinely want to help. And as professionals, we are in it together. Um, you know, for every bit that somebody else puts up a helpful tip, if you've got something to share, we all gain from it as a profession. Uh, and that counts for lawyers that are working in property as much as surveyors. I, I find myself, I mean, it's been it's been a few years since I've been on the tools inspecting the, the properties. And I didn't do it for that long. In reality, I guess I've had more experience as a central function or dealing with claims than I have actually in mm. properties. But sometimes when something comes, you know, a, a defect or a case study or, or a photo that surveyor posts, I do think, oh, you know, I'll, I'll put the answer down or go, I think. And then when I get a like, or they say yes. I'm like, yes, still got it. Still a, still a real surveyor. <laughs> and that's one of the hard things, actually, as a surveyor, when you do something slightly different or not the, the, the typical route you know, for us as, as residential surveys, it's about the home buyers, the building surveys, mortgage mm. wealth. You know, when you do something slightly different, for me, I lost my identity in ways as a surveyor and I you know, had to sort of reconnect with what that, that was. And for me, that's why I went through and um, did my fellowship. My fellowship application for me was, am I a surveyor anymore? And of course I am and I got through and I'm on governing council for RICS and I've got sort of back sort of re-engaged. But it was, um, it's, been, it's been interesting. But the, yeah, the community spirit that we have in the hub is really interesting. Now, don't get me wrong. There's been some to-dos in there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's been some difference of opinion. But equally, you've got to have those conversations. It's really important. And, and it's it's really interesting seeing how how the written word can be misinterpreted very, yeah, very easily. Exactly. And something written in good faith, someone is then up in arms about. So it's been quite a quite a, a learning experience all around, I think. 
And I think that's one of those things. In, in, in any given situation, you are going to find there's going to be a range of opinions. Not everybody's going to agree on interpreting something in a certain way. Because uh, with a lot of the things in property, there isn't a black and white, you know, that's the, that's the absolute right answer and that's the absolute wrong answer. It's more of a sliding scale. I think that the, the thing is, is that, you know, it, it's that po- just assume there is positive regard there that everyone is trying to help each other. And, you know, if there's a difference of opinion, it is important that people are still putting that up there. Because if you see somebody saying, oh, well, I think that's what the answer is. And you're thinking, do you know what? Actually, in my experience, that's really not the case. Or have you thought about X or Y? You're not doing them any favors by not raising the point. That's right. I was going to ask, we've seen that a lot with obviously the issues with the virus. Yes. And there's been a lot of posts from surveyors. Do I carry on with doing surveys or not? Do I, you know, close up shop? Will someone tell me what to do? And that is so hard, isn't it? I've seen the responses that people have given, but ultimately it's a it's a personal thing, isn't it? A choice. How how has the virus affected you and your business? I mean, I appreciate you're not out doing surveys, but how has it affected you? I mean, we've been very lucky at Gunnacook because of the model that we run. We are fully flexible. So we've all got fully functioning home offices. So actually, we, we were doing pretty well up until Friday. The thing that has become more challenging is most of us have children. So we've now got children at home. And so I've got a four-year-old myself who is now homeschooled. So I'm now a teacher as well as working full time, which uh, my husband's a key worker and he's still having to go out. And, but yeah, there's already a lot of panic out there with, with some of my clients who do, who do property sales. As far as I can tell, those sales that were already in the pipeline are carrying on. And I'm still seeing surveys coming through for them. But I would imagine with the lockdown, we're expecting that obviously people are not going to be out looking at houses. They're not going to be necessarily looking to move because it will be up in the air as to what they're doing. So I think things are going to slow down. But what I am already seeing uh, an uplift in just in the last week or so are, are some of the disputes that come through, which perhaps people might call up both lawyers and surveyors about. So you've got things like your antisocial behavior, your next door neighbor having the music blaring till two in the morning, uh, all these kinds of things. So that's coming up. I think we, we, we're limited as professionals to how much we can do. We can tell people to keep a diary, but really that's environmental health at the council. Who uh, I've got a friend who works in that who's saying she's already a bit overwhelmed <laughs> by the amount of calls they're getting. So there isn't going to be a huge amount we could do about that. But the other thing, interestingly, is boundaries. What I tend to find, I do a lot of boundaries work and uh, people who have recently retired are one of the biggest protagonists of boundary disputes because they've suddenly got time on their hands and they're sat in the garden or they're sat staring out the window or they've decided that they're going to suddenly start doing some gardening and looking at the plans to see what they can do. And suddenly you've got a boundary dispute on your hands. Now we've got an entire nation at the moment who all sat at home looking no, out of the window. You no, know, Clay, you're absolutely right. And I was thinking about this over the last few days. What are people going to be doing at home? So for, for us, we've had to move the double bed out of our spare room. My husband's now using it as an office. Yep. We thought we'd give the double bed to one of the kids. My kids are five and 10. And my little, my daughter, five-year-old said she would have it. And then when she realized a double bed wasn't a bunk bed, we had tears. So we've had to backtrack. <laughs> so the house is all in um, in disarray. And there's things I notice a bit more. So I'm used to work from, working from home by myself and I like my space. I don't have that personal space anymore. Mm. 
but there's things like uh, my husband's noticed how cold the house is. We've got yes. a, a Victorian house and the front of the house is colder than the back of the house. So I was thinking about, you know, I mean, I have the heating on quite a lot and he's like, no, we're not having the heating on. So we've got into that debate of heating that we've never had before, not really. And then you've got how people are using a property. And I was thinking, I wonder if condensation, you won't get it, but a random surveyor mm. question, I wonder if condensation levels would be higher with more people in the house, except actually the weather outside today is, you know, as we, as I look out, it's absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. I think, I think in that way. Garden. Yeah. And yeah. you're absolutely right. They'll be picking up on boundaries and those issues. But also, I think a lot of people will be doing DIY. And that's when, when they start doing DIY, that's when they start to notice problems. And that's where claims then think, yeah. you're absolutely right. So, so and I think that is the kind of thing that you might find that there are more phone calls coming in. So while surveys might go down, there might be more possibility for doing that. And actually, a lot of those things, you can look at the, you can look at the deeds or look at the, the lease um, and look at the plans. And, and quite often give them a fairly quick answer on it. It's not something that you need to necessarily get into the long-winded legal answers on it. But I think a lot of it as well, you've got to be a bit pragmatic with people. You know, everybody's got, oh, these are my rights and that's my two inches of garden and everything else. But realistically, the, one of the first questions I always say to them is, you know, how, how much impact does that actually have on you? You know, are we talking here about something that is just a point of principle or is there actually a practical or value-driven reason as to why this needs to be sorted out? Because otherwise, do you really want to get into this? Because you've got to live next door to them. You're going to be isolated potentially next door to them for the next few months as well. Chances of you moving away or, in, or getting away from them, do you really want to escalate this right now is the question that I'm asking. And one of the things that, that particularly puts people off is, is putting it in context, which is quite a lot of people will have home insurance where they'll have some legal expenses cover and they think that gives them you know, carte blanche to do as they wish. It doesn't. Most legal expenses cover only goes up to about 50,000, 100,000 if you're really lucky. Your average boundary dispute, if it goes all the way to trial, you could be looking 150, 200,000 in some cases it's in terms of cost. It's shocking. Um, you, and you I, see people on the, uh, usually on the front of the Daily Mail, <laughs> you know, yeah. of how ridiculous these yeah. things are out of hand. Now, if, it, if it's going to, if it's going to, you know, stop you having access to your property or mean that your property is in serious danger, absolutely. If it's two inches of garden, really, um, is it worth it is the question. And um, I guess people are feeling, um, feel sort of quite unjust though. mm you know, it's, it's the territory boundary thing. It's that I'm losing out on two inches or I've, something's been done to them. They're hard done by. That tends to be the motivation a lot of the time. It does. And actually, quite often they can sit there and let it bubble up. I mean, this is one of the problems we've got with people sitting at home is that that in, an injustice will bubble up and it becomes a point of principle and they do lose all perspective sometimes. And one of the things I think is going to possibly drive this even further at the moment is the fact that people are feeling very out of control. And that there is something I can cling on to and I can focus on and it's in my control. And, and I've got someone to blame for doing something. There'll be a whole wash of emotions under there. And one of the things that we often look at as mediators is, is, is a very simple model, which is the iceberg model, which a lot of people might be familiar with, where you've got this tip of the iceberg pointing out of the top, which is the issue that they're telling you, my fence has been moved or that's overhanging. 
And underneath there is this huge, complex reason of why they're actually really upset. And that's part of the thing that you really need to get to with your client in those early discussions, whether, as I said, whether you're a severe lawyer. Because if you don't really understand what's driving that bottom part of the iceberg, you're not actually going to get a solution for them. Because human beings, if they want to actually feel like something is resolved, actually resolve it on a number of levels. And we can usually deal with that process, that very level, you know, process of dispute resolution. And we can usually get something substantive, which is, you know, this is how it's going to be. And we put it down in a in an agreement or in a letter and, and say this is how it's going to be. But that the third level is that emotional, that psychological level. That's true. Mm. And if you don't deal with that, they will be left with a sense of it's unresolved. And actually, in boundary disputes in particular, if you don't deal with that, you find that something else flares up and it just keeps going in a circular way. And it's actually one of the problems you have with the way in which things have been pushed through the legal system with boundaries in particular in last in the recent years is because the court system gives you the process and it gives you a solution. But nowhere in that system is anybody's emotional mm-hmm. feelings that are all attached to, to this, oh, which so, is their home. So true. I talk, about it. I talk about this a lot when I talk about customer experience. You know, you yeah. get to the emotion of it, understanding it's it's the key to it all. It's about understanding that they're that they're people at the end of the day with with emotions and they just need to just need to understand. Yeah. I mean it's one of those things which is is well known in business, which is people won't remember what you've done for them, but they remember how you make them feel. Yeah. So it's one of with the way in which obviously we've got the new boundaries bill that was coming through with the new legislation, that's obviously all going to be on hold now. But it is still in the pipeline there to push dealing with these issues onto surveyors as opposed to lawyers. And I really welcome that because I think surveyors are in a much more pragmatic position to be able to look at it on the ground, come up with practical solutions and actually but also address that human side. Of, of what's going on with people in their homes. Because I think the problem with a lot of lawyers, and I can say this because I am one, is that we like to give the legal answer. <laughs> that doesn't necessarily solve the problem. <laughs> and it's something I had to learn very early on, that you can tell some of what the law is, but it's not actually going to solve the issue for them. Um, so, you know, nowadays I spend an awful lot of time actually exploring what what is the problem, what really is going on here, so that I can then actually come up with a proper solution that works for that client. Brilliant. Now, when I asked you to have a bit of a chat uh, on a recorded <laughs> podcast, you very helpfully, as a as a lawyer, sent me four pages <laughs> of things that we could talk about. Absolutely. Uh, and I guess that then sort of leads on to, and we've, you've mentioned uh, the mediation and and the court. So I guess let's have a look at some of your your notes that you sent over because there are things that I hadn't really thought about. So with the virus, what's going to happen to the courts? You know, and well, Yeah. At at the moment, I mean, the courts are being very upbeat, as it were. Where we were before we had the the virus issues was the courts were backed up because they've got lack of administration and staffing anyway. So in terms of issuing a claim, I mean, it could be taking anything up to a few months at the moment to just get paperwork moving through. And it's taking an exceptional amount of time to move cases through. So what the courts have issued last week, at the end of last week, is some guidance saying, it's all right, everybody, we're going to move to telephone and video hearings. 
in principle, that's great. What they haven't taken into consideration is the fact that there's already a number of courts that have been closed because people have had a case of the virus and are then having to self-isolate and the judges and everybody else can't run the cases from home. It's just not viable uh, in most cases. And also that the amount of lawyers and barristers who are now unavailable to run cases as well. So what they have said that came out at the end of the day on Friday is anybody who wants to adjourn, that application request will be given priority and they're going to be adjourning off as much as they can. So realistically, I would expect that most things are going to be adjourned off. The other thing that they've said is anything like possession claims, there's going to be a delay on being able to issue those for at least three months to try and keep people in their homes. Mm -hmm. So really, the courts, I mean, best will in the world, I think they will get to a point where they're there for the emergency cases, but your run-of-the-mill property cases, you're probably going to find that we're not going to be getting anything moving until towards the end of the year. Yeah, so that's, that's interesting. So then looking from a surveyor's point of view, you've, what you've then got is... So we're likely to see a spike in claims into the surveyor. Yeah. Other people are in their homes doing a bit of DIY or looking at their boundaries or, or mm. whatever. But with there a delay in any anything that was that big and serious that went to court, I mean they take some time to go to get to reach that stage anyway. Yeah, they do. They're likely sort of to be pushed on. So it becomes ever more important for the surveyors to learn how to handle cases and the complaints that come in. And try and get them resolved at that early stage, because otherwise, because the thing is as well, as we were talking about emotions, is the longer these things are left to fester, the more entrenched people get. They dig in and there's no moving them. Whereas actually right in the early days, you've got a fantastic opportunity then to jump in and actually solve the issue for everybody. It becomes harder and harder the the longer it's left sitting there. Yeah, it's almost like, um, I used to liken it to a, a wasp stuck in a bottle. And yeah. You just get angry because you can't get out. Yeah. You have thousands and millions of people trapped in their homes getting very angry. Yeah. That, that, that's happening. So, yeah, that doesn't, doesn't feel great. But we do have to see how, how these things pans out. It's going to be difficult all around for all sorts of industries in, in lots of different ways. Yeah. Tell me a bit more about your mediation work. So in terms of the mediation work, I mean, quite often you would do mediations face to face. But in more recent years, I've actually been I've been using telephone and video conferencing um, for mediations more and more, mainly because it's such a cost effective way of doing it, particularly if you're dealing with cases where the owners of the property aren't actually living in them or one of them isn't living in them and it's been let out. So actually, you know, I've I've come across situations where the owner of the house might be, you know, not even in this country, but we can actually do, we can actually get things resolved by doing over video conferencing. So maybe just take a step back there. So so people who don't know what mediation is. Okay. uh, What, how do you get, how do you get to that, to that point? Okay, well, what mediation is, is it's basically, it's just a form of facilitated negotiation. So when you would use it is um, 
generally when you're using sort of direct negotiation, that's what you'd start with. So that's when you're having a conversation or you're exchanging emails or letters. And that's generally cheaper. It's, it's gone. It's ongoing. But the problem you've got there is it's always at a distance. And even when you're on the telephone to the other person, it's quite hard to actually get any exploration of what's going on under the surface going on because everybody is taking their formal position on behalf of their client and so on. What you happens with a mediation is you put an independent person in the middle and what that indep- independent person can do is they can have confidential conversations with both sides of the dispute. So for example, what I would do is I would go and speak to one party and I will dig under the iceberg work out what the problem is from their side. And there will be things that they perhaps don't want to share and that they're not comfortable sharing with the person on the other side. But because it's completely confidential, none of that is passed across. I only pass across what I'm given permission to take with me. But on the other side, what I then do is I then mine under the, the, the iceberg with them as well. And then I get a really good feeling sat there in the middle as to, is there a common ground here? Are there points that we need to be bringing out into discussion? And then what I can do is I essentially can coach each side without sharing any confidential information as to how they can help move themselves to a position where they're in that common ground in the middle where we can actually formulate a solution, which is is going to be a compromise for everybody, but it's going to be something that practically can work. One of the reasons that, that that process is so good for for dealing with disputes is this issue with the fact that you've got a structure to a mediation, uh, which I'll come on to in a minute. So you've got that structure, you've got that process, you get your substantial solution, but also throughout the process, people get to voice that anger, that frustration, those other issues that have come in from the side, which possibly you might not see as being directly there in the dispute to start with. And that really helps them to actually get that emotional side of the resolution off their off their chest as well. And you can take into account as well, there'll be other people in there that are stakeholders that you might not be considering as well. So, you know, you might be dealing with one party uh, of, a, of a dispute, but they might have a spouse. There might be a friend who's got some interest in it or is egging them on or they don't want to lose face in front of. They might have financial pressures that they're trying to deal with. Or there could be, you know, if, if it's an institution, they could have policies and procedures. Somebody's boss is leaning on them to go and get that sorted out. Or there could be things that, you know, cultural or political and so on. But a lot of that, see, that, that will come out throughout the process. I mean, would it be helpful for me to go through sort of what the process looks like? Yeah, it would. But I would yeah. just like to say, God, that sounds really hard <laughs> for you as a as a mediator to do that. I mean, I can see the benefit of being in a room, seeing the whites of their eyes, having your your five minutes, you know, to get it off your chest. I can see the the emotional value in that. Yeah. And also, I think, how hard is it to, to do that I think, job, there? <laughs> I think, I mean, it, 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 the, the trait, I mean, this, and this is part of the problem uh, about why you've got to be careful when you select your mediator. Training to become a mediator is tough. If you do, if you've got a properly qualified mediator, they should be properly accredited with one of the organizations like CEDA or the ADR group. There are some people who will call themselves mediators, but haven't necessarily had any training because it's not a regulated profession. 
much as uh, some of us think that it should be. But it is it is difficult because you do have to be comfortable sitting there with the emotion with people, but not getting involved in it because you are impartial. So you've got to have empathy for people. But, it, you know, I always liken it a little bit to thinking about penguins. You know, you can watch them swimming around in the water and know that it's cold without jumping in and joining them. And you kind of have to remember that when you're a mediator. But for me personally, I absolutely love it. But um, I mean, my first degree before I became a lawyer was in cultural studies and sociology. So I've always had a fascination when it comes to people. And mediation is all about dealing with people. And because I find people genuinely very interesting, for me, having a conversation with someone and finding out, you know, what's going on for them and what makes them tick is something I enjoy doing. And then I've got the analytical side of my brain as well, which comes with being a lawyer which says, okay, well, how, how are we going to make this work? And, and how do we put the process onto that? And it's how I've practiced law for a le- very long time. And it's uh, not necessarily how most lawyers would approach it. But actually, it, I, I found it pays dividends because people are human beings. And much as people try to ignore that, everybody has uh, feelings and needs to be heard. You know? Isn't that just so true? We forget that we're human beings. And I think if one thing comes up, this whole virus situation is that as a society, we recognize that? Oh, absolutely. And I would say at the moment, the clients that I'm talking to, I am probably spending 80% of the time on the phone with them talking about how they're feeling and how they're coping and 20% giving them any kind of advice. If that, because that's what they need right now. You know, there there are other times when they might be the kind of people that are phoning me up and saying, I just want an answer on this right now. Fine. But at the moment, um, and I think this is the other thing as professionals, we're probably finding ourselves talking to people who are trying to keep things together themselves. And, And as a trusted professional with some confidentiality in there, you might be the only person they've actually got to speak to because they don't want to be letting their, you know, wife, husband, you know, whatever partner, whatever, um, know that they're worried about things, or, yeah. or let their staff know that they're worried about it, or you know, or, or, or the kids. So you might find that there are people that's the first chance they've actually had anybody go, "Do how are you feeling? How are you coping?" So I think we've got to expect that a bit these days. Yeah. So, so tell me a bit about the the, the process and the framework. So, so the process, basically, you've got a five-step process. The first step is the most important. It's preparation. So this is the bit where surveyors really do come into their own when they've actually had those conversations with the client about asking them, you know, why does this matter? How much do you want to spend on this? What does the solution look like? Where have we got room for compromise? Where haven't we? You also need to obviously decide how you, who you're going to appoint as your mediator. And really, you want to get your mediator in relatively soon because the mediator will actually help with the process. So you give them the basic outline of the case. And then I will generally have a call with the people on both sides, at least one, if not more, and just scope out their case with them and say, you know, have you got everything that you actually need? So for example, coming back to the to the boundaries we were discussing, one of the things you are going to need for that is obviously everybody needs copies of all the deeds and the plans. But because we're not going to be in the houses, we might be or on site. Otherwise, what you will need is you'll need a decent plan 
to be done. And, you know, there are ways and means of doing that and people need to take precautions. But also photographs, have, has each side got all the photographs of all the different things they might want to talk about? Have they got all the, the bits of evidence and information to hand? Because there's nothing worse than trying to do mediation. You get there and part with your discussions, someone says, oh, well, how, mu- how much would that be? Or how, how, what are the figures on that? Or well, do you have a do you have a photograph of that? And people go, no, I haven't, and then it just grinds to a halt. There's no, I mean, we've worked on we're on just worked on different sides, if you like. I've defended yes. players. You, I, I, <laughs> I, I, do, I, I mostly bring claims against. Them, I hate to say it, uh, but you know, there, there's nothing more uh, satisfying than picking up a file uh, when there's a complaint and knowing that all the information is in there. That's you know, the the I's have been dotted, the T's have crossed. Absolutely. Sense. It's legible and you can read it. It just gives you that warm feeling that no matter what comes up, you're not going to be tripped up by yeah. a typo or whatever. And it just makes a massive difference, doesn't it? And, and absolutely. If, you, if you're looking at the professional negligence example, preparation again is absolutely key. Have you got all the stuff together? And unfortunately, I, I do find with some professionals, they're just not keeping the notes. And then with the best will in the world, they come to the preparation level and they go, do you know what? I haven't got the file. But if that is where you're at, you need to know that before you go into a mediation, because that's mm-hmm. one of the things that you want to be taking into account when you're having the discussion with the other side. Now, all of that preparation doesn't mean that you give the other side all that information right there and then it means you've got it to hand so that you can disclose what you feel it is useful to disclose before the mediation but if during the mediation you need a figure you need a photo you need a reference note you've actually got it to hand so you can pull it out and yeah. you share it when it when it when it's appropriate to do so but that preparation stage that is the difference in my opinion between whether a mediation itself is going to succeed or fail and that is i mean Mediation has a very high success rate. Most people will put it around about 80%. But that is on the caveat, uh, I would say, that you, you've prepared. The ones I've seen that failed, as I said, it's been because someone has said, well, go on then, where's that information? And they've gone, well, we could get that, but it's going to take us three weeks or um, oh, it's back at the office or oh, I haven't looked it up and it'll take me or I have to phone so-and-so and get it. And it, and that just kills the opportunity to get it resolved. And, and actually coming to a meeting ill-prepared like that, it doesn't work when you've got ordinary meetings, but it doesn't no. work in a mediation either. Can it's, I ask you yeah. about, uh, you know, sort of, we're in a society now where everything's online and tick boxes. Yeah. And so when we talk about the file, we don't have filing cabinets, no. of site notes and photos. Has that impacted or made a difference? Have you noticed over the years how things have changed? Um, I think one of the things that has made a difference too is that most people have got historical copies of their files now, whereas before things were lost. Now it's a lot harder to lose things yeah. than it was before. But I think it has it has meant actually the quality of some of the notes. To, I mean, coming back to the negligence and complaints issues, the quality of the notes that I'm seeing is a lot better because people have got the the iPad or whatever out with them. So they're making a note while they're out and about, and then it's going straight onto the file. Whereas I think previously, people have 
you know, maybe taking a note in a in a notebook and the notebooks go astray or they don't quite match up with the file. And then they're left searching back through trying to find that note from when they visited. Whereas now I think it is making life a lot easier, but only where people are using it consistently. That's the key, isn't it? Using it consistently, having a good routine, good filing. Just like yeah. your filing cabinet, you need good filing and backup of your, yes. your, your online systems and, and storage. And, and we've got requirements, you know, that we, yeah. we have to do that for PI cover and, and RICS membership and, and the like. But it's about consistency of your, your routine. And for me, when it came to claims, that was a thing that made a difference. If someone was, did something a bit different and was off routine and didn't do something the way they usually do it. You can That's get usually it. when it goes wrong. Yeah. 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 I think the other thing as well is that to remember, yes, you've got to tick the boxes, obviously, but sometimes it's just doing a little bit of, uh, of of backside covering, I like to call it, which is if you've had that slightly tricky conversation with somebody where they've mentioned something or they've said, could you just, what do you think about that? Or could you just tell me a bit more about this? Or what's your opinion on that? Actually just noting that down somewhere. I mean, you could, you could do that in a few different ways. You can put it just straight onto your system as a note to say had a conversation with client about, or, or had a conversation with the homeowner about X or Y. Or you can cover yourself completely by putting it in an email. If you put it, because what I will often do is I will have a conversation with someone and afterwards I'll send them a quick email saying, yeah, just to cover off those points we discussed, so you've got it for reference in future, you asked me X and Y and, and the response was this. Because then if I have not quite remembered it correctly, they've got an opportunity to come back and correct me. But it does mean if they then come up in the future and say, well, you told me that or you didn't tell me that, you've actually covered yourself off then completely. Yeah. And that's important because I think some people think that emails and other correspondence don't form part of the file. And it's actually harder to find them, yeah. those things afterwards. You know, sort of 10, 11, 12 years ago, we had a lot of claims in our industry. Yeah. We used to talk about the confetti letters of notifications yeah. coming through because they came through thick and fast. And I guess the market in terms of claims hasn't been that bad over the past few years. Yeah. My worry is that there's a generation of surveyors who have never had a claim. They've never experienced anything like that. And obviously the worry that we have now is, okay, we're on lockdown with this virus. It's likely to have an economic impact. It's likely to affect home ownership and all of those things. We've just talked about homeowners getting their complaint emails out. Uh, So we're likely to see a spike. I would say that that is fair. I think the thing is, is that if you've done what you should have been doing, you kept your files in order, then really don't panic at the first time you get a complaint in. I mean, I can say having been around the block a few times, you know, as a professional, I'm amazed if I ever meet anybody who hasn't had a complaint, to be honest, at some point, because quite often they're not even because you've done anything wrong. It yeah, could just yeah. be a client who doesn't quite fancy paying that bill now, but they haven't really got an excuse not to pay it. So they will uh, they will put in a complaint to try the hand and see if it knocks a bit of cash off. So that's how a lot of people come across their first complaint. Others, it is a case where someone is just, you know, they're a bit short on cash and they're looking at you know, somebody's told them you might be able to get some money out of this. And sadly, there are some people out there who do do the ambulance chasing for it. 
So I've, I have actually seen, it's not so much a practice now, but there was a stage where there were some unscrupulous organisations going around and actually looking at people's properties and saying, we'll come in, we'll do a free survey of it. And either issuing claims against the landlord or saying, oh, you bought the property, was that not in your initial survey? And just creating claims where there would never have been one otherwise. There's, there's been some attempts to crack down on that. Um, and obviously, they're not going to be able to go around at the moment. But there are still people out there that will take advantage of the situation. They, they absolutely will. And I think, you know, I've come across it when it, uh, in Japanese, not with Japanese, not weed. Yeah. With uh, you know damp and timber, yeah, it's it, it's not great. It's it's not fair. That said, though, sometimes they do genuinely pick up errors, and we've got to yeah. you know be mindful of that. These things do happen. Yeah. He's immune to it, but it's one of those things as a surveyor that you actually dread. Uh, you know, do, do you know the things. thing is as well though, having having done a bit of work with the with insurers and so on, is with you with your solicitor, whether it's appointed by the insurers or, or direct. The thing to do as a surveyor is to be open, completely open and honest with them right on day one. Because the other thing that I've had with, um, I found with some some of my uh, cases I've dealt with, is when someone has panicked and thought, actually, maybe I wasn't as on the ball with that as I thought I would be. And then they've tried to cover it up, or they've not been honest about it. And then down the line, it will come out. And actually, those are the people that have then got in problems with their insurers or with their employers. Whereas the people that have held their hands up and gone, I'm not sure I might have got this wrong. I, I don't. I don't know. But here's my. Here's all the information I have. Help me. Are actually they're the ones where quite often they, they get sorted out a lot quicker and they're in a lot less trouble in the long run. Absolutely, absolutely. Claire, it's been really good to talk to you today. I could ask you loads of questions, but I won't. <laughs> but thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Super. You've been listening to the Surveyor Hub podcast. We'd love it if you leave a review and let us know how we're doing. And if you want to find out more about how we're making a difference, visit us at blueboxpartners.com. Listener.